0: How many have heard Joel Rosenberg sometime? Excellent. How many have read his books? Hold your hand up or listened. Okay. How many would like a really great deal on an autographed book by Joel Rosenberg tonight? Hold your hand up. Uh, You're out of luck. We sold them all this morning. Uh, So, but... We're going to have a great night, uh, Brother Joel speak, and uh, we'll do question and answer tonight, which should be very fascinating. If you've read some of his books, maybe even got started in the newest one, to see what God is doing in the, in the Middle East is just incredible. Jesus is Lord. Someone say amen? Amen. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Amen. Okay. Let's pray. We welcome your presence tonight, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are the head of the church all over the globe. Whether they meet under a tree, or they're in South Korea, or they're in Saudi Arabia, they're in Canada, or Germany, or in Lexington, you love your people, Lord Jesus. And, Lord, you want to see more and more people become sons and daughters of the Most High. We welcome your presence, and we just dedicate this time. Would you guide the discussion? Would you guide the questions? And thank you for your servant, Joel, being with us these days. Bless him, encourage him, and strengthen him, and anoint him. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brother Joel, you may take the podium.
1: Well, thank you, sir. Uh, it's great to be with everyone. Um, so as we begin tonight, let me just tell some stories, okay? And um, I don't know, I know I'm short, but I don't know what they were thinking here. <laughs> Semi-insulting, but it's all good, you know, it's all... <laughs> it's like... Okay, Have a... it's Sunday evening, we're having a little fun. Okay, so um, let me tell some stories. and and. Uh, warm you up and then let's see if you have some questions to go from there. Let me start with how in the world did I end up meeting these kings and crown princes and presidents and prime ministers? Cause it's, that is an interesting story, especially, you know, I, I may have alluded to earlier. I just don't remember. I've spoken so much in the last 48 to 72 hours. I really don't know which group I said what to. So forgive me. I'm a failed political consultant. Did I say that? This morning, uh, yeah, everyone I ever worked for in Washington lost. Well, you're laughing because it's not your resume. And uh, if, it w- if it was, you wouldn't be laughing. So um, I'm one of the few Jews in America uh, that didn't get the financial gene. Okay, I'm not your stock bro- broker, not your hedge fund manager, I'm not your CPA, uh, I'm not uh, a doctor, a lawyer, I don't run a movie company, I'm not a chiropractor, I didn't really get the classic Jewish skill sets. So I, I basically learned how to make things up for a living, which worked well in Washington, but uh, you know, and then I sort of had to own it and become a novelist. Um, so having all those doors to normal life closed to me, yeah, I started writing political thrillers. Now, a few years ago, almost 10 years ago now, um, hi, who's gonna join me? Oh, very nice. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Thought he's wow—that you know, front row seat. You could have sat there, but thank you. So I wrote a series of novels, three, a trilogy, um, about ISIS, right? The Islamic State. They capture a cache of chemical weapons in Syria, and they're starting to plot a series of genocidal attacks, okay, against the United States against Israel, against Jordan, okay? Now, in this series, uh, ISIS is trying to assassinate the king of Jordan and kill his family and blow up his palace and take over his kingdom, okay? We're all doing fine so far. That's what a thriller should be, a horrible scenario that could happen. You pray it doesn't. Because I'm not that bright, I decided to name the character of the King of Jordan, the actual name of the King of Jordan. Okay. King Abdullah the Now that didn't seem so bad when I was in my room, just writing away, but then he read it. Okay, now try to imagine somebody writing a novel that a person that you've never heard of before. And they write a novel about people trying to kill you and your wife and your children and blow up your house by, you know, by name. Like it's, so what, well, how did that happen? So what happened was, uh, one of, so the, President Obama invited King Abdullah to come to, the, to Washington to meet with him. Uh, this is like 2015 20, 2015 or thereabouts. And uh, so the king was heading to Washington. Now, one of his advisors was uh, uh, in London, had some business to do in London, and, and then was going to catch a flight from Heathrow and come into to D.C. So as he's going through Heathrow Airport, he sees a book in a bookstore window, and he's never heard of me, he's never heard of the book, but it just strikes his interest. It's got a seal of the president on the cover with three bullet holes in it, and it just seems like, well, that'd be an interesting book to read on the way to Washington to meet the president. So <laughs> he ducks in and uh, grabs a copy of the book, and you know he gets himself all seated in, that probably first class, I, don't, I didn't ask him, uh, chapter one. What? Now he finds the palace is destroyed. The uh, Amman is in flames. ISIS is overrunning the city, killing people. The king uh, is in his own, flying his own Black Hawk helicopter in retreat, uh, trying to mount a counteroffensive to take back his city and his country. Okay. By the time the plane lands, and this advisor, you know, he goes to the to the king's hotel room, and he says, your majesty, you have to read this book. And the king says, why? He says, because you're in it. He's like, what are you talking about? It looks like a novel, like a political thriller. I know, but you're a character. What do you mean I'm a character? You're a character. I don't know. You're named as a character. They're trying to kill you in this book. What? Now, if any of you happens to have Uh, um, the private email address of President Obama. I would honestly, truly, genuinely like to get it because I owe him a thank you note. What happened was the, the president canceled his meeting with the king. The king was already in town. The press already knew he was there. Now, he had other meetings too with senior administration officials and members of Congress, but it was kind of embarrassing for the king to now suddenly... Be told, well, there's no time for you to meet the president. We'll have to reschedule for a few months from now. But now, suddenly, the king didn't have anything to do. So he read my book. Now, it, having read my book, he then said to the advisor after two days, he said, uh, "Who is this guy, guys? I, I don't know." He goes, well, "You're in the intelligence services. Go Google him or do something. You know, figure figure this out." So. Uh, the next thing I know, I'm having lunch with the advisor. And the next thing I know at that lunch, towards the end of that lunch, um, he invites me to have dinner. So the next night I have dinner with him to keep this conversation going. And at the end of dinner, he says, listen, uh, his majesty would like me to invite you and your wife to come for five days uh, to get to know him uh, and his inner circle in Amman. Would that be something that you'd be open to? I'm like, uh, you know, like guess got nothing going on. Sure. Sure. No, that would be, I would be honored. I mean, oh my gosh, seriously. So a few months later, Lynn and I go to Amman, Jordan, and they check us into the hotel, and then, and then a car drives us to the palace, and we have lunch with his majesty, who I got so flustered, I called him your honor, uh, because, you know, I just, like a judge, I didn't, I didn't, you know, didn't really, it, was not, it was kind of embarrassing, but only one of many embarrassing things I've done in my life. And, and so we have lunch, just the four of us the king, Lynn, myself, and this advisor. And um, we're in a, a wing of the palace that they call it the crisis center. Um, and it's like a situation room and, and a war room, and then this little ante room, little small dining room. And it's just the four of us, no a, other aides, no security. And lo and behold, uh, the king says, "Uh, so Joel, I was thinking, where would it be fun to meet you for the first time? And and he thought, well, you know, I I thought to myself, you did blow up my palace. So I was thinking, maybe we ought to bring you here and, you know, give you a little bit of a tour and give you a sense. This is kind of a nice building and we don't want this to happen. I said, no, you're right, your honor, your majesty. This is a really lovely building. And... He said, you know, I, you took a little bit of a risk to name me in the book, but I see that you didn't name my staff and my advisors. Like you, you came up with fictional names for them. But I can see who's who. So I have bought a lot of copies of your book and I, I give them to my staff. I say, hey, this is you on page 47. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. You might, you might wanna read that. Who knew he had a sense of humor, right? I mean, you have to understand, this guy is a direct descendant, 43rd generation, direct descendant of the founder of Islam, the the, the prophet Muhammad, okay? Uh, you know, and, and, and he's a monarch, and he's right across, I mean, he, I, I live across the river from him. And um, so at the end of lunch, and it was fascinating, we had an hour and a half together, and we have an expression in Hebrew, dayenu. This alone would be enough. Like, wow, like, if you just got a chance to, mean you know, meet him and shake his hand and say hey i'm glad you like the book you know uh, that'd be nice right dianu to have lunch with him double dianu but he says but but we had 5 days so he says listen i'd love to keep talking now but we've got a live fire military exercise at a base in eastern jordan it was supposed to be done last week when president or then vice president biden was coming to jordan but when the Secret Service learned that we were using real missiles and real machine guns and and, uh, and all they, they didn 't think that was a good idea, so we rescheduled the live fire exercise for today we didn 't reschedule it for you, but you 're here, and I, when I got up this morning, I thought, "Oh well, maybe you, know, you two would like to come and, and see that and you know I was thinking you know, I, I was tempted because i 'm a wiseacre. You know, ah, we were going to go shopping, we were going to go to the pool. Um, the gift shop seemed nice, but no, I, I I was on my best behavior and I said, your honor, your majesty. We, yes, we would love that. Uh, sure. He's great. So I got to go change. Um, but I'll, I'll meet you there in a little while. I'm going to put you in a, in one of my helicopters and fly you out to the base. Okay. And so we, we lift off over the palace and fly out to this military base. And uh, half an hour later, he comes flying in. In his own Black Hawk helicopter. And uh, so, I mean, just how are we getting to do this? And then he basically, uh, we're, he's chatting with us and a, and a group of young people that were also at this event. And suddenly, as he's chatting, and he's in full military fatigues, by the way, suddenly, a missile comes flying overhead, 100 feet overhead, and blows up, uh, you know, maybe a half a kilometer behind us. And we all whip around, and sure enough, helicopters are coming in, fighter jets are coming in, tanks are coming in from every direction, and they're, th- th- these troops are practicing liberating an ISIS-controlled village in Syria. And he's giving us play-by-play and color commentary on the action. And we're, I'm thinking, where am I? What kind of planet? How have I gotten, how have Lynn and I gotten to this position? Uh, And over the next few days, he he put us in his own private helicopter and sent us to different parts of the kingdom to meet with his generals to learn. Basically, what we realized, what he was doing was he was showing us over those five days what he and his team were doing to make sure my books never come true. (laughs) And uh, we were very impressed. The final night um, was a private dinner uh, at his private palace. You know, these kings, they have, they have multiple palaces, right? If you, if you come over to Israel, you'll see King Herod had, you know, a palace over here and a palace over here. Saddam Hussein had a, you know, you, you why well, just have one when you can have many? So the king has a private palace, and, and, and we were invited to this private uh, dinner just with him and a couple of his close friends. And uh, when, when, so my, my wife was only able to come for a few days because uh, we had made a commitment to one of our sons, our youngest, uh, that we were going to take him back to the States to visit family and friends uh, over Easter that year. And, and our youngest was really frustrated and struggling with life in Israel and really missing his, you know, his family and friends back in the States. So, so we didn't think that it was wise parenthood to say, well, you know, we've got a meeting with a king. We can't really keep our commitment to you. So we did keep the commitment. So Lynn came over for two days, and then she flew back to Israel and took... Uh, the youngest back to the States for a bit. But I was there at this dinner, and the king's first sentence to me was, hey, look, uh, welcome, uh, and I want to apologize. The queen was supposed to be here tonight, uh, but she wasn't able to come, and, I'm, and she's very sorry. I'm, okay, you know. Like, I'm thinking I'm, I'm in a Disney movie. Like, I'm in a palace. There's a king, the, the queen. I don't know. Maybe she had a ball, a slipper to find. I don't know. It just <laughs> wasn't a normal part of my life. And, uh, and so he said, well, the thing is, tomorrow's a very busy day for us. Uh, tomorrow, the UN Secretary General is landing, and uh, he's coming for high-level meetings uh, here, but he's also bringing the head of the World Bank. I'm like, well, yes, that's a very important, busy day. He goes, well, that's not all. We've got the Turkish Prime Minister flying in, A few hours later and the Bulgarian foreign minister is coming a few hours after that so it's just a crazy day and then we got a phone call that Bono you know the rock star uh, wants to go visit the uh, one of our refugee camps in the north so he just landed at the airport and the queen felt badly for him and decided to have a little dinner party for Bono and of course i'm thinking why aren't you with Bono like why are you here with me i it doesn't even make sense uh one of the things i did was i said you know your your majesty you read the second Book in the series. You actually missed the first, but I brought you some copies, and uh, can I give them to you? And of course, sure. So I pull some out of my uh, briefcase and I, I say, Can I just show you the first sentence of the first page of the series? Now, this series happened to have been written in first person, okay? Uh, usually my novels, you know, one scene is in the Oval Office and then you shift to the you know the leader of the terrorists. Uh, you know in some cave or you know hideout someplace, and we shift to the Kremlin, and then we shift. Or so you keep you know moving all around and seeing every angle of the of the threat emerging. But in this book, I this series, I decided as a challenge to myself as a writer, I would I would eliminate that and put you looking through the eyes of one person all the time. How do you sustain three books when all you can see? is this person's vantage point. And that was the, the challenge. Um, and so I said, can, can I show you the first sentence of that first page? Because it's kind of crazy. And he says, okay. So I said, the book begins, the series begins, I had never met a king before. And he goes, well, you have now. And he signs the book and, <laughs> and he hands it back. So over the course of those five days, we just had these fascinating conversations with him, but also with his his highest uh, advisors. And and um, at the end of that dinner that night, I, I said, and I and I describe all this in enemies and allies. This is this is a whole chapter, so now you don't have to read that chapter. Uh, but I said, you know, I, I hope that you see that I was writing a. a a worst case scenario. Obviously, we don't want anything badly to happen to you. He goes, Well, yeah, I figured that, otherwise, you wouldn't be here. I said, Okay, well, that's good. So, um, but I said, I, You know, it, it, it is extraordinary for me as an American and an Israeli, as a Jewish person and an evangelical, to, to get to know a, a Muslim monarch, a moderate Muslim monarch. I say that three times quickly. Uh, it's just fascinating. Your perspective is fascinating. I was intrigued with you before I came, and, I'm, and I have much deeper respect for you now. Um, I think it would be actually quite valuable if other American evangelical leaders who who love Israel, but I but, but think they need a perspective, your perspective, to understand how you see the region and how you see the prospects of peace in the region, and how you see counterterrorism and the threat of radical Islamism, the threat of Iran, and so forth. And I said, "Would you ever be open to, you know, meeting with some Christian leaders like like what we've done?" He said, "Absolutely. Let's let's work together on putting together an evangelical delegation." And uh, how does that sound? I said, "That sounds great." So. I left, and we began thinking that through. Now, of course, he was fighting ISIS, he and his forces, in real time uh, during that genocidal period. Well, a few months later, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm on a book tour uh, for another novel, and lo and behold, uh, I get invited to meet with President al-Sisi of Egypt, And uh, I'd been building a relationship with the Egyptian ambassador, and President Sisi was coming to Washington for his first state visit. And they were gathering about 60 Middle East experts, and somehow I got included. So we have two hours with the president. We're asking him questions. It's totally fascinating, off the record, though. Uh, But at the end of the meeting, the president stands up, his entourage stands up. We all stand up, and we assume that Sisi and his team are leaving. But they don't, they just are chatting amongst themselves. And everybody in the room is, was a very high level, former somebody, you know, they're a former secretary of this or a mayor of that or the, you know, whatever, some really high, interesting people. The ground rules are that I can't say who was in the room, but you would, you would recognize these names. So I'm thinking, so, so they all know the protocol, right? They're all formerly muckety mucks, right? So they're like, oh, I don't think I should take a selfie with CeCe, you know? I mean, we couldn't have anyway. They, the Secret Service had taken our phones before we went in, but nobody was going up to talk to him. I thought, well, that seems kind of rude. I'm going to go up there, and unless the Secret Service tackles me, I'm going to go, you know, say hi. So <laughs> that's called chutzpah where I come from. Uh, so I work my way around the room, and nobody stops me. So I'm like, hey, how you doing, Al? No, I didn't. I, it was. Uh, <laughs> So I introduce myself and and describe just briefly who I am, and and I say, Mr. President, I want to thank you for rescuing 100 million Egyptians from the reign of terror of the Muslim Brotherhood. He said, well, you're welcome. (laughs) I said, uh, I want to thank you. As I mentioned a moment ago, I'm an evangelical Christian. I'm an Israeli and an American. I'm Jewish and evangelical, and his head starts spitting on its axis like, I'm sorry, what? I said, you know, as a Christian, I want to say thank you. I've been noticing that you are, uh, that, that under your leadership, the Egyptian government is rebuilding all of the churches, all of the churches that were burned down, damaged, or destroyed uh, during the Muslim Brotherhood reign of terror. Um, I'm, I'm just deeply impressed by that. Thank you. Well, well, you're welcome, Joel. Well, I also noticed that you're reaching out uh in ways that I don't recall any Egyptian leader doing. I, uh, you're reaching out to Jewish leaders. You've got Pope Francis coming in a few weeks. Uh, you're reaching out to Roman Catholic leaders. You're re- reaching out to Egyptian Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox leaders. I, I notice that you're on Christmas Eve, you tend to <clears throat> go and uh, uh, honor the Christians as they're having their Christmas Eve celebrations. I don't recall any Egyptian leader ever doing any of these types of outreaches. He goes, well, this is the new Egypt, Joel. We are not the same as before. We're setting a new path of, of moderation and of openness to people of other faiths, including um, the Christians of Egypt. I don't want to see them as our country as Muslims over here and Christians over here. No, they're, we're Egyptians. I said, well, it's very impressive. He said, you're welcome. Uh, I said, uh, now, I'm not, this is, I'm not being critical. He's like, Okay. I said, but I, I haven't noticed, and maybe they were off the record, but I haven't noticed that you had any meetings with evangelical Christian leaders. And uh, he says, uh, well, no, I, I don't think that we've had any. I said, well, I think that you might want to consider that. Um, uh, there are 60 million evangelicals in the United States, and there are 600 million worldwide. And, uh, and, and we're a fairly influential group. And we we're very much interested in peace, and we we're very much interested in religious freedom, and and uh, we would be very interested in understanding your views. And uh, I mentioned to him just briefly that you know I just met with King Abdullah, and we were going to put together a delegation. I was just honestly trying to plant some seeds. This, you know, i But he, but he, he he said, "Well, Joel, would you bring a delegation to Cairo to meet with me?" He has no idea who I am, okay? We've we've been talking maybe seven minutes. There's literally nobody around us except the security team. And he just invites me, and I'm like, "Mm, yes, yes. I'd already prayed about it. You know, I've been praying about it with my team for a long time. I want to meet King Abdullah. I want to meet President Sisi. I want to become friends with him. I want to be a witness to them. How can we get to know them and talk about these issues? I call these audacious prayers, right? They're crazy prayers, but God doesn't have to say yes. We all know the prayers in our lives that he says no to, right? Uh, But I I encourage our team at the Joshua Fund, listen, you can pray crazy prayers. You know, Paul told us to pray for open doors for him. Well, he's not around anymore. Let's pray for open doors for each other. Maybe God would open these crazy doors. Like, he doesn't have to. And why us? Okay, I get it. But what if he did? How How would we be good stewards of those opportunities? So, so he said, Joel, would you like to bring a group? I'm like, absolutely. So For the next two or three minutes, we talk about what that might look like. I've now spent maybe nine, ten minutes max with him. He turns to the three gentlemen next to him, his foreign minister, his chief of staff, and his ambassador. He says, gentlemen, make this thing happen. Okay, so we step aside. We give each other cards. The ambassador is appointed as the point person to work with me on this, And I thank everybody, and I leave, and I get on a plane, and I fly back to Israel. A few days later, it's Passover. So I'm at our next-door neighbor's home, and at that time, our next-door neighbor, where we were living then, was the president of the Israel College of the Bible, which is the main Bible college in Israel. Uh, It's a ministry that the Joshua Fund heavily supports. My wife happens to now be an associate professor there, She's the associate director of their women's uh, leadership and disciple-making training program. And uh, so anyway, we're having dinner with uh, the president of the college, a Jewish believer, Israeli, and his wife and kids and a bunch of uh, staff from the Bible college, their families. And they're like, wait, wait, Joel, wait. You just met with Sisi? How did that happen? I thought you were going to go lead a delegation to Jordan. I said, I know. He said, but now you're going to do this with Egypt? I know. Well, that's crazy. I know. And uh, I said, here's how crazy it is Imagine being a Jewish man standing before the leader of Egypt on the eve of Passover and saying, Let my people come. <laughs> that is not how the story goes, right? So that's actually a, a chapter title in the book. Let my people come, and um, and and then I, of course I feared that the whole thing, you know, God might harden His heart. We wouldn't go, but well, we did, and uh, we were the first evangelical delegation ever, ever to meet with the president. the The meeting was supposed to last an hour. It lasted almost three. It was all on the record. You read the story in the book, and we. Prayed. We asked for his prayer requests. We prayed for the president. We we shared Bible prophecies with him about the future of Egypt. We asked about all kinds of topics, uh, very sensitive. Anyway, this is just crazy what God is doing, but he's doing it. He's doing it. And I think too too often, you and I don't aim high enough in our prayers, right? We're praying, oh, Lord, please make the car start, which is important. I've had cars that, you know. Oh, that's how helped our prayer life okay uh oh lord you know and in ministry like oh lord please give us somebody that will just take you know make the coffee in the morning or you know take care of parking or whatever okay god happy to answer all of our prayers not always say yes but but I, we're not aiming high enough we're not asking lord open the doors so that we can show love and mercy to people who don't know you um and i think that's the thing you know Lin and I were discipled at Syracuse University by a pastor who was originally from India. Um, a very thick accent. His name was Doctor Foka Kadavel Ipan Koshi. Okay, I want you to say that with me. No, we just call him Koshi or Doctor Koshi. Very thick accent, and he used to say, "Joel, lean vis of a prayer, hearing and a prayer answering God, a wonder-working God." Well, often we needed English-to-English translation to know what in the world is he talking about. What, what? So he, he said, Joel, Lynn, we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God, a wonder-working God. And he modeled for us the power of prayer. Again, he was like, look, God's not when he said, when, when the Lord, when Jesus says, uh, ask and you shall receive, he doesn't mean if you ask for a Maserati, you're going to get it right? It's qualified later as if you ask according to his will. Um, But okay, uh, if it's not his will, he can perfectly say no. But is it possible that we're just not praying for the Lord to do things that would be so obviously him and so obviously not us that he would get the glory, okay? So that's what I'm trying to model for our team because it was modeled for me, so anyway, lots of other uh, fun stories, uh, but I think we'll stop there. That was longer than I intended, and see if you have any questions. If you don't, I've got plenty more stories. I'll just prattle on up here until I, you know, I can't really see you so well. So if you're gone, I'll know because you, nobody's laughing anymore. But uh, anyway, uh, Pastor, you want to see if anybody has a
0: question? We have uh, two brothers. Mike, where are you? Stand up. Come halfway down the aisle, would you come halfway around? So... You got a question, I want you to get out, come to the microphone, and ask your question, okay? So stand up, come out, ask your question. Okay, first, over there. It's on. It's on. It's on. Uh,
2: Mr. Ro- uh, Rosenberg, thank you. Oh, uh, hi. You are know, you talking about a lot of the things that are very concerning to all of us. Steve took us to Israel in 2014, 45 of us. It was an amazing experience. Uh, Just being where Jesus walked alone was worth the trip. We had a Jewish guide who was not a Messianic Jew. He was very charming. He was very informative. Uh, It was a, a, a wonderful tour and experience. But when I left, I had a concern that the population of Israel and its diversity was not on its on the same page that uh, I was little concerned because of this diversity uh, and difference of opinion of what the future of Israel should be that I would like for you to explain to us where you think the future is and where the people are today in coming together hmm. for, on behalf of Israel
1: okay um, well we are a very diverse population in Israel uh, let's start with the fact that about 78% of the population is Jewish, and about 22%-ish uh, is Arab, okay? so, and most of the Arab population is Muslim, and you know some of the population of the Arabs is Christian. So already there, there's, there's a split. Now people have attacked us and accused us every day, including members of Congress, that we're an apartheid society. Okay? It's not true. Arabs have, have full right to vote to run for office, to serve in the Knesset, and they do. There's actually uh, an Arab party that's part of the Israeli government right now, okay? Um, Israelis can, uh, I mean, Israeli Arabs start businesses, they're CEOs of some of our major banks, and uh, um, a large part, almost half of uh, our doctors and nurses in Israel uh, are Arabs, Okay? Arabs serve on our Supreme Court. Arabs serve in our police systems. Uh, it's really a, it's a, I'm not saying it's a perfect system, but it's a beautiful system. Most of the reasons that Arabs have not advanced further, uh, some of that was sort of racism and, and institutional problems in the past, but much of it in the in the recent era is because Arabs have been conflicted, Israeli Arabs, should they be involved in the society? You know. Are they supposed to be resistant and sort of stand with their Palestinian brothers and sisters in the West Bank and Gaza being against the Israeli government and against the society, or should they participate? The only thing that the Arab people in Israel who are full-on citizens don't have to do is they don't have to serve in the army. They're allowed to if they want, and some do, uh, but they don't have to. Uh, So that's one element of the diversity. But the other element is we have Jews from every country in the world. Right? Because God scattered the Jews in the first century to every country in the world, and then they brought them, you know, he's bringing them back, uh, bringing us back. What, what does that do? <clears throat> well, you've got black Jews that were living in Ethiopia for 2,000 years, and that's a fascinating thing to find what they call Falasha Jews. You've got Chinese Jews. They look Chinese. They speak Chinese, and they're Jewish. Uh, you've got the whole Russian uh, and Eastern European Jews. You've got Jews from uh, from Latin America, South America. They speak Portuguese. They speak Spanish. Now, this is fascinating. And, it, and it, uh, is it a melting pot? Is it a salad bowl? You know, Jews have enough problems in the outside. But we've got some problems with each other, okay, outside of Christ. It's amazing. You know, you'd think anti-Semitism would wield, weld us all together. But sometimes we're at each other's throats uh, because of these cultural issues religious well, not sometimes religious differences yes there are there are super religious ultra orthodox and there and there are people who are super secular and the you know the gay pride movement and it's quite a quite a society and uh, now it's great for our intelligence services right we have iranian jews we have chinese jews we have russian jews we have people from all these countries so they're great to recruit and train now they would be better in missions Okay, wouldn't it be amazing to have Chinese Jews know Jesus and go reach China? Uh, to have Russian Jews go reach Russia and uh, African Jews go reach Africa. And we're not quite there yet. It, the, the, the Messianic body is, mo- is growing, but uh, they don't quite have, uh, as, a, as a whole body, a, a heart yet for, uh, for the Great Commission. Uh, it's, they feel like it's hard enough to reach Israelis. Why would we send our young people to go overseas? I think that's a mistake. Um, I think the Lord blesses young people when they go into a mission uh, field, because it's less about the impact they make overseas than how they get excited and think, I could do this. Why aren't I doing this more at home? And then they come back and they get... So um, anyway, that's, that, that's a process. But um, that's the short answer. You, you just ask a doctoral dissertation question. So I think you should go to Asbury University or the seminary and, and get your degree on that. Okay. Uh, yes.
3: Um, this is a curious question. Who were the evangelical delegation folks hmm. that you took with you?
1: Sure. Well, we, I described them. All the names are in the books, but one of them is here tonight. Larry Ross uh, was Billy Graham's spokesman for 30, almost 35 years and uh, has been a great counselor to me. I mean, again, most of us don't have any experience going into these type of environments, but imagine somebody who'd been at Billy Graham's side for all those years, uh, all those crusades, all those types of meetings. Uh, Larry's been an enormously uh, beneficial counselor, friend, uh, advisor. He's been on every single one of the six delegations we've led. Um, but th- there's a range of others. Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council uh, came on several of them. Uh, Kay Arthur uh, of Preset Ministries came on several. Um, uh, Lieutenant General Retired Jerry Boykin, the former commander of Delta Force, came with us on some. And it's just, I, I looked for uh, for men and women. Um, I looked for people who were, you know, known for their pro-Israel views and those who, they weren't anti-Israel, but they, they weren't particularly uh, you know focused on that topic. Uh, a range of different uh, theological views. I mean, all you know within orthodoxy, but um, and who d- had different types of uh, uh, platforms, either as a pastor or as a you know we had the former president of Christian Broadcasting Network, uh, uh, Michael Little, with us, and and uh, the current then current president of National Religious Broadcasters, um, Jerry Johnson, and and so a range of people that would bring different angles and perspectives in, um, different racial perspectives um, as well. Uh, We have Latino and and African Americans. It was fascinating. Now, the groups were usually only 10 or 12 people, Uh, so each group had a bit of a slightly different mix, just so I could rotate in people um, who had different angles and perspectives, and then they would go back out to their world, and talk about what they had seen and heard. So thank you for asking. Yes.
4: Thank you for coming and sharing with us, I really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. So I work with church planters across the tension belt of Africa, where Muslims from the north and Christians from the south live side by side. Some of those places, they live in peace, but some of the places where we work, uh, ISIS-inspired terrorism is killing Muslims and animists and Christians. In uh, Burkina Faso, uh, we're working closely with people, widows, who have suffered those results of radical and, and apocalyptic Islam even in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, an insurgency that's terrorized people. And I just wonder, as as you've observed a broader scope of of history, um, what words of encouragement you'd have for pastors and church planters in the tension belt of Africa? where Islam and Christianity are coming face-to-face, often in conflict, sometimes in bloodshed, and sometimes in peace?
1: Well, that's a great question, and it requires uh, probably a much more uh, in-depth answer than I can give tonight. I would would first start with the topic we, you know, the passage that we started with this morning in the Scriptures in Matthew 16, where Jesus promises, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the the, the forces of Satan are waging horrific, uh, fierce, um, ferocious battles, uh, particularly at, you know, you call it the detention belt, at the, at, the, at the intersection where Islam is trying to push down from North Africa, and Christianity is, uh, I don't want to like to use the term exploding in our, my part of the world, but in a mushroom being growing, and is trying to surge up, north, into North Africa, and there's the tension, right? But um, we have to remember that Christ's will will not be thwarted, right? He will succeed. Now, that, you know, often the, uh, the church grows by the blood of the martyrs, and that is a tough message, right? Like, maybe... The Lord will protect uh, these national uh, uh, missionaries and church planners and foreign uh, workers who come to assist the local believers um, and, and, and give them divine and supernatural protection. We've certainly seen that happen, but, but often not, right? And what's interesting is uh, martyrdom and persecution never stops the church. You would think that it would you 'd think that people would bail and and many people who claim to be christians will will bow when persecution comes because they're, they haven 't truly given their life to Christ. Jesus describes this in the parable of the soils right. Uh, you know, some, you go out and sow the seed of the word. Some gets, you know, the word gets snatched away by the birds right away. Well, this is Satan snatching away the word of God from uh, from a listener. But others, you know, will start to grow a little bit, but they don't put roots down. And the heat of the sun comes up and they burn right up. Others get choked off by the worries and fears of life. and And, and you know, and whether it's the heat or the worry somebody who's claiming to begin to grow in jesus and yes i'd like to come to church and yes i'd like uh to be part of this community but when the heat comes they're they're not really born again and they they bail um now some people bail for fear and then they'll come back around okay you know john mark bailed on paul and barnabas out of fear right he was born again he was a believer but he he was young and, and he got scared but barnabas was right uh you know, they were probably right to separate, but Barnabas was right to go say, this guy, God's not done with this kid. Okay, you're going to have to learn your way through fear and, and develop more courage and go back into the hunt. And, of course, Paul affirms uh, John Mark later, you know, bring him to me. He's useful to me. So anyway, there's a range of responses. But the point is the, the, the when the communists in China burned down the church to the ground, that wasn't the end of the story. There are now almost 100 million followers of Christ in China. And it's not because they're being offered a Learjet and a Rolex. You know, what, what happens? Why, why does the church grow in China? Because pe- people see hope in their neighbor's eye when the, the Chinese communist system is so bleak and so grim and so tightly held. And they, but they see hope and they see peace in their neighbor. And they say, listen, my friend. Why do you have hope? I see something different in you and the and the chinese christian goes i can 't tell you no no, no, you must tell me you I, 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 I see something and i 'm scared and i 'm struggling and, and yet my wife and I we see something no no, no i can't listen i can 't tell you no, you must tell me you're my friend listen i I, I could get you. why, why can 't you tell me because I could get you in trouble. What kind of trouble you,
0: you
1: we 're all in trouble, we live in china like, tell tell me what Tell me what you know that's causing you to have hope through this. Well, listen, I'll tell you, but listen, I'm telling you, if I tell you, you could be arrested. You could be fired from your job. Your kids could be banned from ever going to school. Uh, you know, you, you could be arrested. You could be tortured. You could be killed. For, for what? What could you possibly tell me? Well, that, do you want to know? Yeah, well, okay. Come back to me next week if you really, no, 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 tell me now, tell me now. Okay. They share the gospel. And that person has to decide, my life is going to get worse. If I receive Christ, my life gets worse. I'm not listening to anybody on television going, woo, your life's going to get better, woo it's the best life now. No, your worst life now, but you're going to heaven. You're going to have hope as an anchor for your soul. You're going to have peace that passes all understanding. You're going to have wisdom from above. You can have that, or you can go to hell and be fearful on the way. It's your call. That's how the church is growing right? That's not how it's growing here. In Iran, we're seeing more people come to Christ, more Muslims are leaving Islam than any other time in history. and they're become, Why? Because of the pressure cooker of radical and apocalyptic Islamism. So, I, I, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying we don't give up. We press forward. We never surrender. Christ is going to win, but a lot of us are going to be casualties along the way, and we have to get we sort of have to absorb that and go, that's part of the gig. But people are dying without Jesus. I would be dying with Jesus. So I'm invulnerable. Uh, I'm not saying I wouldn't be scared. I'm not saying I, I want to die today. We are supposed to be living sacrifices, right? We're not homicide bombers. We're not suicide bombers. Paul tells us to be living sacrifices, right? Um, be willing to die, but don't look to die. And that's, what, that's the type of discipleship we need to help and encourage People, particularly who are on these front lines, where life is life is very, very difficult, and we cannot kid people. Jesus spends a lot of time. You know, American churches we don't teach this, but, but, but if you're in those type of situations, you're often pointing out to Jesus, saying, "Listen, if you're not willing to bear your cross and suffer in my name, then you know basically don't bother." Jesus spends a lot more time warning people. Listen, if you follow me. You know, you think I brought, came to bring peace on the earth? No, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide families. You're like, well, Lord, that's not the focus on the family message. Well, we're trying to bring people together. Yes, we are. But if you receive Christ, I, I, one of the guys that works on the Joshua and staff in Israel, he was in the army. He came to faith in Jesus as Messiah. And his wife said, you leave that and renounce that or I'm leaving you forever. Um, what do you do? he stuck with the lord and tried to insist and plead with her she left that's that is a tough call right christ came to divide families sorry i know he wants to unify families but if you have to choose between jesus and your spouse or jesus i'm not not as a regular decision okay not like, you know, should we get the green carpeting or the red or, you know, the brown or we should buy this car or, you know, the used car or the new car, right? No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, receiving Christ and paying a penalty for it. We've got to teach people because suffering is coming to the United States and we are going to start to learn the lessons of the Christians in the Soviet, former Soviet Union and in the Muslim world and in China, Yeah. Okay, that's the short version.
2: (laughs) Joel, uh, you did a great job yesterday morning unpacking Ezekiel 33. My question involves
0: the latter chapters of Ezekiel where Ezekiel is shown a humongous temple. Hmm. And uh, not only that, but a, a river that starts there. Uh, and um, my question is, uh, most scholars, I believe, or at least conservative, treat that as a millennial temple. What is your
1: take on the temple in Ezekiel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I went so long with that answer, I thought, you know, I should compensate. No, yes, it, it's true. That, so, so people talk a lot about the third temple. But Ezekiel says is the fourth temple. Yes, a temple is going to be built um, in the last days of history. I suspect, my father's an architect, and I have learned over the time, I have no architecture skills whatsoever, but I, I see how long it takes to build a building, certainly the size of a temple. So I suspect it's possible, and in fact probable, that the third temple is going to be built before the tribulation begins. Why do I say that? Because in Revelation 11, I believe, uh, John is told to measure and observe a fully functioning temple, and that is noted as the first day of a three and a half year period, and then uh, trouble comes, and then there's another three and a half year period. So that's, that suggests strongly that the temple is actually already built and functional um, by day one of the tribulation. Okay, that's interesting. So that would suggest that they, they have to start working on it. Prior to the tribulation. Now, whether that's prior to the rapture or not, I don't know. Now, maybe you all are not uh, people who believe in the rapture. That's okay. You'll be raptured anyway. Uh, it's, it's, you don't have to understand it. It's not a thing. It's not up to you. Uh, and I will say you think, well, you know, what, you know, rapture, I mean, I mean, just being snatched up, Yeah. And I, that would be nice tonight. Um, it would be great. And, uh, but I would say that the reason, uh, this, this part is a joke. I'll just pre- signal ahead. Why haven't we seen the rapture yet? Well, there's basically two prayer movements against the rapture. Uh, single people <laughs> and would-be grandparents. Grandparents. Okay, now this, these are very large constituencies, and they are, they are praying, Lord, come Lord Jesus, not today, I, I beg you, well, let me get married, please, I just, or let me have grandchildren, I'm just, at some point, the Lord will say, okay, enough already, you know, no, but for now, it's a very, these are very big constituencies, very big lobbies, and right now, people are more prayerful about these issues than, than many others, so, but, so, that, so there'll be a third temple, but Jesus is not going to reign in a, in a temple that's been desecrated by the Antichrist. Right? So so that one will he will raise it to the ground, fumigate it supernaturally, and then build Ezekiel's vision of the temple, and that will be the one that he reigns in for a thousand years. And that will be a quite a sight to see, and you're all welcome. Because remember, we Jesus said we'll always be with him. So yes, we either die naturally and go to heaven, or we are raptured, and then we're in heaven. But then when Jesus comes to reign for a thousand years, we come with him. We're on the earth for a thousand years, and uh, and depending on where you live, maybe you'll resettle in Kentucky, lovely. Uh, I plan to be in the Caribbean, but that's fine. Whatever. I mean, um, and then, uh, but every year, every year we're supposed to come to Jerusalem, and if we don't, Jesus says, "You, I won't rain on your crops." So, you know, and that'll be important. Uh, so we're going to be uh, spending a lot of time in Israel, a lot of time in Jerusalem, and we'll be, we'll actually get to be part of a, see, a, a functioning temple. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. The only thing I will say, the only thing I don't like about the millennial kingdom, and I, this is my own personal thing, but uh, Jesus says there is no marriage in the resurrection. Again, why the singles are saying, yeah, exactly. So I want to be married now. So you know, don't come, Lord Jesus. Not yet. Not yet. Now, in the you know, in the resurrection there won't be marriage, right? And and I don't like that because I love my wife and I don't want to see her five hundred years into the millennial kingdom, you know, at a Starbucks or whatever on the corner and have her go, Hey, pal. I'm like, pal. <laughs> pal, I'm not your pal. But it's till death do us part. And, you know, I don't understand that. I don't. Uh, it, there'll be something better. It's sort of like telling your five-year-old about marriage. they're <laughs> like, what? I don't want to ever do that. Okay. We don't understand it at this point. I certainly don't. But anyway, it'll all be better. Um, so so the fourth temple. It's coming, but we got to get a third temple first. All right. Over here.
0: In the uh, book, you talked about the Biden administration the road ahead but you said it was written in uh, February of 2021. I'm wondering, six months later, the collapse of Afghanistan, where do you see the United States in the Middle East?
1: Yeah, the surrender of Afghanistan to radical Islamist terrorists that we'd already defeated on the eve of 9-11 was horrendous. Um, I don't want to be political about it. Uh, If Trump had done it, I would say that was horrendous. Now, the critics of Defenders of Biden and critics of Trump will say, well, Trump wanted to do it. Yeah, but he didn't. To be honest, yeah, from day one in the administration in the Trump years, he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. But to his credit, he listened to his advisors, uh, to Pence, to Pompeo, to the generals, who said, listen, you pull the Jenga stick out at the wrong moment, the wrong time, the whole thing's going to collapse. So let's work our way carefully to scale down our forces while we continue to take out the bad guys and strengthen our Afghan uh, military and and, and, and government partners. And so um, I think, you know, again, look, I have criticisms of Trump and I told him in the Oval Office, I, I, I described my meeting with Trump in the Oval Office where I told him I was a never Trumper in 16. Now, my friends, how often do you think that the term never-Trumper is used with Mr. Trump, particularly in the Oval Office? Because looking at his eyes, I'm thinking not that often. (laughs) But it's an interesting conversation. You can read about it. Look, I I had criticisms. I remain with criticism. But he also did many good things. It's extraordinary what was accomplished. Biden has many good qualities. They are not on display right now. And we need, if I'm saying I'm willing to pray for the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the president of Egypt because Paul commands us to pray for kings and all those authorities, you and I have to stop. We have to get off the the, the, the Twitter feed just critical of him all the time and pray for the president. We can't afford three and a half more years of, of what we've just seen. Okay? Now, it was... It was exhausting and infuriating and sometimes sickening to watch how the sausage got made over the last four years. But the sausage tasted pretty good. I mean, we just it was ugly to see, ugly to watch, painful to watch. But a lot of good things that were accomplished on the Trump watch. And I say that as a man who, was, who wrote the 38 reasons Trump would be a catastrophe for the United States in 2016, okay? I, 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 I'm just being honest about where I was. And so that was an interesting conversation with him. Uh, but we need to pray. I, pray, I told the president, "I, pray, I have, once you took office, I prayed for you every day, you, your family, and your team. And I've done the same thing with Biden. I don't know that I'll be invited, but I would go. I would meet with him. Um, Paul wants to meet with Nero, the Caesar of Rome. Uh, so I think we need to, you know, Daniel was... Uh, praying for and providing spiritual counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar, the man who invented throwing Jews into fiery furnaces. Biden is not that. So let's be praying for him and his family and his team that they would turn course and that they would know Christ. Okay? All right. Uh, What else? Who else?
4: Um, I'm a leader in a Torah club uh, in this church through First Free Design we just recently studied the scripture you referenced 1618 and learned that upon this rock I will build my church. The church in the Greek uh, is Ecclesia, which is the assembly or congregation. From the Jewish perspective, uh, the assembly of Messiah will be the renewed church of Israel, not the evangelical church of today. Would you comment on that?
1: No. I mean, I will comment. It's, that's not accurate. Uh, the, the church is the called out ones. The called out ones out of what? Out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the the kingdom of of Christ. And and so um, we can can use different terms evangelical over here, uh, Coptic Orthodox over there, Messianic over here. But whether you're Jew or Gentile, you get called out of sin and darkness and a death sentence to hell forever and ever and ever with no way of escape. Into the kingdom of Christ, into the kingdom of uh, forgiveness and light and love and eternal life, forever and ever and ever. Um, so, uh, so Jewish people, we've got a lot of issues. Uh, one of which is we've rejected uh, the Messiah for all these years. And by the way, most people have not; most Jews have not actually rejected the gospel because they've never even heard it. What they've rejected is the history of Christian relations with Jews which didn't seem that promising to be honest, you know, crusades and inquisitions and the like. Uh, so they haven't actually ever looked at, most of them have ever looked at the scriptures. Um, so that's one problem. But the other problem is once Jews do become followers of Jesus, then some become very prideful. Now I'm a Messianic Jew, and I know more than the Gentiles. And the Gentiles need the Gentile church needs to look at us. We're not you. You need to come to us for guidance. And we are the apostles of the church, and we are... Whoa, whoa, not good. Not good. Not gonna do it. <laughs> Wouldn't be prudent. Not at this juncture. Not gonna do it. OK, sorry, I slipped into Dana Carvey there. Um, Dana doing George H.W., you know. He, he once said, remember, uh, that was back in the day where you could tease a president and not be cruel, right? When, when, when President George H.W. Bush was leaving the White House and he was having a final Christmas party with his staff, and he invited Dana Carvey to do an impersonation of him, right, in front of all of his staff and his friends and his wife. And, uh, and Dana Carvey said, uh, I'm, I, I realize I'm on a diversion. I'll get back. Uh, but this seems fun, and it's a Sunday night, and we all have a little bit of fun. And uh, and Dana Carvey said, you know, I was trying to think of how to do President Bush. He's kind of a unique style, and I thought, well, it's one part John Wayne, and one part Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and if you combine that, you get, nah, and, uh, wouldn't be pretty, at this juncture, Not very scary, right? Anyway, so, Messy Andrews, so... Jews coming to faith in Jesus, good thing, wonderful, but some—and I, I, I say this with, with sadness, not with um, not with anger—or or, is they have they have decided now we are the apostles of the church. It's a it's probably a movement you haven't heard about yet, but it's a problem because like suddenly now we are the Gentile church has to come and listen to how we proclaim how the church should be done. It's a mistake. It's not biblical. You don't see Paul distinguishing a Jewish follower of Jesus from a Gentile follower of Jesus. He says, there is no difference now, right? And and he he says, "Uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. And as you go through, you say that, you know, Paul's saying there's no difference between Jew and Greek, man or woman, slave or free. What he means is spiritually, once you're inside the kingdom of Christ, well, even before there's no difference in the sense that we're, we're lost. And, when we, and then when we get found and we, get, we become born again, then there's no difference. We don't, we're not supposed to treat um, one type of ethnicity who comes to Christ different than the other. Now, I guess you could take all, you, you know, people who are, have perverse thinking could take that. There's no male or female. See, this is why we have transgenderism. No, no, that's not what Paul is talking about. Come on. Uh, or there's no you know, there's no Jew uh, meaning okay there's nothing special about Israel okay the Bible is super clear Paul is super clear there are distinctives uh, there are benefits to being Jewish there's a lot of downside I will tell you but um, you know one of which is uh, uh, that the world has targeted us for annihilation you know people people say oh you know a lot of Gentiles are like oh you Jews you think you're so special you know, you're the chosen people. Uh, look, we don't even want to be chosen. How has that worked out well for us? Really? Any, like, like Hitler chose us, but so did the Pharaoh and Stalin and Mahmoud, Ahmed genocide. And, you know, people choose. We don't want to be chosen. Choose the Brazilians, choose the Japanese, choose the Kurds, bless their hearts. Why do we have to be chosen for all this extraordinary attention? We don't want that, right? Um, Remember the Far Side cartoons, the Canadian uh, cartoonist Gary Larson, he he used to do those one panel, you know, funny things with animals. My favorite is uh, there's two deer standing in the forest, right? And one of the deer has a bullseye on its chest. And the deer without the bullseye says to the deer with the bullseye, hey, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. (laughs) That's what it's like to be Jewish. Jewish you're like, how did I get born with a bullseye? Who's hunting me anyway? And in in my case, I I have a bullseye on my chest and on my back because I'm a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. Like, shouldn't I pick something that's not, people aren't trying to wipe us off the planet? Like, that would be, that'd be good. So um, there are distinctives to being Jewish. God did bring the Messiah through through the Jews. He did give the word of God and entrusted the word of God's faithful transmission throughout history to the Jewish people. Um, he, he, and, 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 and he does love us, and he ha- is opening our eyes, and more Jews are coming to faith in Jesus than, than ever before. More Jews are listening to the gospel than ever before. One of the ministries that Joshua funds funds uh, is a ministry that produces in Israel uh, short five or six minute video testimonies of Israelis who 've come to faith in Yeshua in Jesus, because jews don 't think that Jews can come to faith in jesus they, it, it seems crazy to them, so when they watch videos like what how is that possible there are English language videos too i 've done one my orthodox father turned follower of jesus father did one. you can google these. Um, But there are Hebrew language ones, and Joshua Fund has been funding those. Why? To make sure every Jew and Gentile in the land of Israel hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean they've all come to faith yet. But how do you plant seeds? You can't invite Billy Graham to rent a stadium. Well, he's not with us anymore. But even if he was, nobody in Israel is going to go to a stadium to hear the gospel preached. How are you going to reach people? Well, you reach them through their phone. They are literally searching for God and they'll type in in Hebrew Moshiach, Messiah. What, what sites do they find? We've been funding the ministries that are making sure that the first 10, 15, 20 sites that you see actually are people who know the Messiah and can guide you to Him. There have now been more than 40 million views just of the Hebrew language testimonies. Uh, and, and, and since we think of ourselves in the Joshua Fund as a venture capital firm, spiritually speaking, that's a pretty exciting return our, on the investment, right? God is doing something very special. Um, but we do have to watch for people who try to hijack things and decide that they are going to be extra special and nobody else knows the word of God the way they do. If you really knew the Hebrew, you'd know that that passage doesn't mean that. So you're saying that 400 scholars that were translating that into English have no idea what they're talking about. that is what you're saying. Well, if you really knew that, no. I mean, it would be great to know Hebrew. I'm still struggling with it. It'd be great to know biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek. I'm, I'm not against that, but I'm just saying men and women have been working very hard to make sure we have faithful representations of what God has told us. So again, an extended DVD answer, very interesting question. Thank you so much. Just Good evening, sir
0: Hi, Thank you for a very entertaining uh, uh, evening on a lot of tough subjects and uh, a
1: spoonful of sugar that 's right that 's right. right.
0: You mentioned the transgender thing we won 't go there too much on that, but what I would like to ask is the international community, the Muslim countries israel. Uh, we have obviously as a country, the United States, taken a distinct turn away from who we used to be. There's a lot being pushed constantly now. How do these countries see us? Is it just political or do they see a change in our culture? Mm.
1: Well, certainly our enemies see us as um, a a paper tiger ready to collapse. Okay, Uh, Radical Islamism believes that they brought down the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and now they have brought down the United States in Afghanistan, and it's just a matter of time until we collapse, okay? So that's how they see us, and they want to deliver the death blow, okay? Um, Our allies are worried. Israel is worried. The Arab world is worried. Why? Because they feel like if an American commander-in-chief can't handle the Taliban, How are they going to prevent Tehran from acquiring the nuclear weapons to create a nuclear 9-11? It's rattling them. Uh, This administration just pulled all the Patriot missile batteries out of Saudi Arabia, which is being fired upon almost weekly by Iranian-backed terrorists in Yemen called the Houthis, uh, and Iran uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to shoot these things down, and now we 've just not only pulled out u s forces out of Afghanistan and are getting ready to pull our forces out of Iraq but now we 're pulling mi- our, our anti missile batteries out of the region. This is a problem, and uh, you know generally you want to cause your enemies to have the fear of God of you and you know and you want to strengthen and make sure that your uh, your allies think Believe that you have their six, that you have their back, that you're with them, right? Trump, for all of his, you know, all the cacophony and craziness of what it looked like, how he did things, what he said, America's enemies feared us because they thought, he's crazy. He could just totally take us out. And he did. He took out Qasem Soleimani, the top terrorist general in Iran. He took out Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the top ISIS Uh, terror leader. He he led the force to destroy the ISIS caliphate. He moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem against the advice of his own (laughs) advisors, some of them. Amen. Um, He stood with our allies. His first trip, I was shocked. His first trip was to Saudi Arabia, where he met not just with the Saudi leadership, but the leadership of 50 Arab and Muslim countries. This is a man who I had criticized in the campaign for calling for a a ban on all Muslims who'd want to enter the United States. That was wrong, but he adjusted. So for all the chaos and the the frustration, and maybe some of you still feel that towards him, and I understand that, right? I wasn't for all the tweets. I wasn't for this 4 a.m. tweet storms. I wasn't for the fact that he often was more critical of his own staff than of Putin. Okay, I don't think he colluded with the Russians, but I'm just saying he had an odd sense of priorities. I didn't like paying off a porn star. I didn't. Li- there were. I didn't. There were a lot of things I didn't like, but there were a lot of things he did right. And if I compare that to a genteel president who is not doing much right at all, isn't entirely sure his administration should define a mother and a father, this is a problem, right? Um, so I'm saying this, and that sounds partisan, but it's not. I'm assessing if Trump does something wrong, I'll I'll say it. And lose a lot of Twitter followers in the process. Okay. I want to speak the truth in love. I'll be respectful. If if an Egyptian leader is doing something right, I'll say it. But if he's doing something wrong, as he also is, I'll say that in the book. And in the Saudis and others. I was a partisan, and I have my own personal feelings, but I'm trying to be a trusted resource for the church, I'm trying to help people see leaders uh, in 360. I want them to see what's going on in Israel and the Middle East in, a, in 360 dynamics so that they can see the good and the bad and the ugly, what to pray for primarily, and, um, and that is not always popular, okay? So I know it'll sound like, wow, he's being super critical of this guy and pretty easy on that guy. It depends on what they're doing on a given day. Um, but, you know, somebody mentioned, uh, the last uh, person, one of the last people said, you know, I was talking at, at a breakfast yesterday um, about Ezekiel 33. That's the watchman on the wall, that God has pointed people to, to watch, and if there are threats coming, we have to see those threats, properly identify them, and tell people. Right? Because most of you are not spending your day paying attention to Iran. Nor should you, but you should pay some attention because we used to say 20-year-olds, oh, come on, what's, you know, Middle East, don't tell me, I don't want to know what's going on with Al-Qaeda, with the Taliban, I mean, people live in caves, What, what, what does it have to do with me? Then we found out. So we do have to understand the threats that are facing our country and how serious these threats are. You all, you all don't have to spend every day worrying about it. Or you shouldn't spend any time worrying about it, but you should be thinking, might the Lord want me to be engaged in something? And, and that something is transforming the lives of Muslims into followers of Jesus, particularly radical Muslims. I'm very passionate about this because I've traveled throughout the region, and I've met people who literally told me I was a terrorist, and then Christ transformed me, and now I'm going to give you a bear hug, Joel, and it's a good thing I know Jesus, because otherwise I'd cut your head off. <laughs> well, thank you, and I believe them. <laughs> Let me give you a couple examples of what God is doing, just to be encouraging, okay? what I'm passionate. I believe God changes people, Okay. God contains Trump. He can save him and transform his, his 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 mouth and his his thumbs. I believe that. I believe that Biden can be changed because people in the Bible were changed. The Apostle Paul was a religious terrorist, right? I mean, he was a Jewish terrorist. He wasn't a radical Islamist, but who cares? He still was arresting, hunting, imprisoning, and killing Christians. That's pretty bad. <laughs> And he became a great apostle. That's because Christ changes people. So let's believe that and say, let's pray for our leaders. Not just, I mean, you could be changed out into other leaders. You know, that's one prayer. But that God would change them. okay. And what about these radical Muslims? Are we going to just get mad and go, oh, well, this is terrifying. Or live every day. Oh, my gosh. But let's pray that our government defends us from them and that the church goes to convert them. Let me give you a couple examples. So a few years back, uh, early on in the Joshua Fund ministry, um, I was traveling in, in Iraq. Um, it was A little odd, Jewish evangelical, spending time traveling through Iraq. It was a dangerous time. Um, but um, I felt the Lord wanted me to do it to explore. Are there ways that we in the Joshua Fund could be investing in strengthening the church in a very volatile country? And... I built a relationship with a ministry uh, in the Kurdish region, um, and they had access, somebody had offered that to, to sell them used radio equipment, AM, or, uh, FM radio equipment. And they were like, look, we don't have the money to do that, but wouldn't it be cool to build the first ever Christian radio station in Iraq in the post-war environment? I said, yeah, that would be pretty cool. I said, well, how much do you think that would cost? and do you have any people that you know would have some expertise in helping you do this? Well, this is what it would cost, and no, we don't have any expertise. I said, well, give me a little time. Let me go back and see if maybe we could help you in a number of different ways. So I came back to the States. I talked to my friends at Transworld Radio. I said, could somebody or a team of people go and, and, and advise them, and I think we could raise the funds to... Uh, to help them build this first ever Christian radio station. And they're like, "All oh, right, great. So, we, so over the next you know, month, year, whatever, we, we help them do that. We help them buy a tower and all this equipment and train the staff. And well, anyway, I got a call one uh, day from the, the head of that ministry. And he said, Joel, um, well, he said it more of an Arabic accent. So Joel, please, my friend, Habibi, uh, we, we need you to come over to Iraq. Okay, why? Well, because we are the, the radio station is ready, but we can't get the final signature on the license. We can't turn it on. Can't, we can't go live. Okay, how, I'll pray for you. Yeah, 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 pray for us. But what I want you to do is come and meet with the prime minister and get him to sign the signature. I'm like, I, I, okay, I, I may have misheard you. What I thought you said is you want a Jew who follows Jesus, American, mind you, to come and meet with the Muslim prime minister uh, uh, and get him to sign the license so you can reach Muslims for Jesus and bring them into the kingdom of Jesus. That, yes, yes, exactly, that's what we want. Uh, how, how could I be helpful? Oh, no, I think you could be helpful. Uh, uh, okay, let me pray about it. Uh, okay, so I went and I asked my wife, do you think I should go? She goes, absolutely. I said, do we have a marital problem? Are you you're trying to... There's got to be easier ways to get rid of me than this, because this is going to look pretty obvious when I don't come back, okay? So I said, well, okay, I, you know, I, I would be, uh, Let me, okay, I think, yeah, the Lord wants me to do it. I'll go. Sure enough, I met with the prime minister. Now, in their culture, the prime minister of the Kurdish region is like, we would consider him a governor of a region, but still, he's a distinct prime minister. Met with him. We had a great conversation, I asked him for the signature, he signed it, 97.1, in case you're in the region, in case you're ever in the neighborhood, I know some of you are actually, uh, 97.1 on your FM dial, gospel preaching, Bible teaching, Christian music, now, when I say, amen, amen, that's the Lord, clearly. That's, those, that's audacious prayers, in this case, on our Iraqi brother's behalf, like, what, that sounds crazy, I can't help you. Oh, well, maybe the Lord does want to use you. Then when ISIS was surging across Iraq, they were coming dangerously close, I mean, within miles of the border of Kurdistan. Well, the, the guys that were running the radio station were like, we, we're all, we all need to flee. So they turned off the transmitter, they packed up the car, and they started heading further away from the border. As they're driving, the phone rings, Hello? Uh, yes, this is the Minister of Communications. Why is your radio station off the air? Because we're going to die. <laughs> ISIS is just a few miles from the station. No, no, my friend, please, Habibi, you, you must go back. People believe that they are getting peace and hope from that radio station. If you turn the station off, they, all hope will be lost. Aren't you a Muslim? Yes, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Christian. Yes, I know. Go turn the radio station back on. Okay. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, God did this. Now, let me give you one other story. Okay. One other, I mean, are we good? I, I know you want to ask questions, so just hang on for a moment. Well, no, I'll, I'll hold the story. I'll hold the story. Let's answer your question. You've been very patient. Sorry. I'll carry carried away with my story, sir. That's okay.
2: In your book, you've quoted David Shedd as saying that the United States not only understands extremist Islamic led terrorism much better, but it has also built up the intelligence and security capabilities, and capacity to counter the terrorism threats at scale. Does the United States still have the capability, and if so, will they use it? And the second question I have is you brought up the rebuilding of the temple. How close is there a deal being brokered between the Arabs who have the temple mound now and the Israelis to be able to build that temple?
1: So I'll start with the second question first. No, there's no deal, and it would start World War III if the Jews tried to do it. So you say, well, how is it going to happen? I don't know. I did write a novel about it, of course, about how it might happen, Um, and I'm I'm, I'm sort of tempted not to tell you because maybe you should read the book. Uh, It's called The Copper Scroll, but I will say this. In Ezekiel 38 and 39 what's known as the War of Gog and Magog, right? Uh, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, a group of countries come to surround Israel after Israel's been reborn in the last days of history, after Jews have come back to the land of Israel in the last days of history, after Jews are rebuilding the ancient ruins and making the deserts bloom. After that happens, these countries form a a hostile alliance and they come to, to capture, consume, destroy Israel. Israel doesn't defend itself. America doesn't come to its defense, NATO doesn't come to Israel's defense, but God supernaturally rains fire down from heaven, sets in motion a huge, massive earthquake, etc., etc., and all these enemy forces die, and Israel is, is saved. That is a prophecy that's coming. It's known as the War of Gog and Magog. Now... I, I wrote a novel series. My first novel series, um, uh, it was The Last Jihad, The Last Days, and it led to the Ezekiel option. That's where that war sort of unfolds. What, what, might, what might that look like? Then comes the Copper Scroll, and then Dead Heat. In that series, I speculate, I mean, I you know, fictionally, I think, well, how would that temple be built? The Bible never says how, um, but it says it will be built, so we just have to do some sp- speculation. So, as long as I'm clear that this is speculation, what I wrote about was, what if when God is raining fire down from heaven to destroy the enemy forces, what if some of that fire happened to land on the Temple Mount? I don't mention this the, the Saudis uh, when I'm with them. You know, you can't bring up every topic. They can go read the novels on their own. They've got money. They can, they can you know, buy the books. Um, but if that were to happen, who's to stop? The Jews waking up the next day and going, apparently, we're in the clear here. Now, there are Orthodox rabbis and the whole institutions that have been built. They have already done the architectural plans. They have, they're, they're, they're sewing all the priest's clothing. They're fashioning all the implements. They're, they want to be ready to go. They don't know how this is going to happen. But when it happens, they want to be ready. So that's A-way. Okay. Uh, your first question uh, mentioned David Shedd. Now, David's a friend. He's an evangelical. He was the acting director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And you're right. I cite him as saying that the U.S. intelligence community has learned an awful lot since 9-11. You're raising the question like, well, what happened last month? Like, wh- how, did we, how, did, how did we surrender a country we'd already won? Now, it was messy, right? It's, t- it's Afghanistan. I've been to Afghanistan. I've met with the tribal Muslim leaders. I met with Afghan Christians on the ground there, and I can tell you it's not France. You know, we defeated the Nazis in France, and then you got Paris back, and it was lovely. You can go to Paris and feel like, oh, this is a liberated city, and it's beautiful. You don't feel that way when you're in Kabul, okay? It's messy, but it was stable, right? This didn't happen last year. It happened because of a specific decision to pull the Jenga stick out, and Darn the consequences. And so you can have all the advisors in the world who know the threat, but if you're the commander-in-chief and you decide to pull the Jenga stick out, that's your call. And, And people have died as a result, and we have Americans behind enemy lines, and it's a huge problem. Not just because it's bad in its own right and it's humiliating, but because it sends this message of emboldenment to the a- enemies and it is rattling our allies and and we're in the early stages of this new administration. So again, another reason to pray. All right, let me tell you another fun story, okay, about, about God. And then we'll probably wrap up here in a few moments. Uh, we got one over here? Okay, all right. Well, you'll get the last question in a moment. So let me tell you another fun story of, wh- of how God is moving, okay? So a few years back, um, Um, maybe 10 years back now, so, uh, well, let's see, 2009-ish, so, okay, so 12 years or so. I get a phone call from uh, a dear friend who's an uh, an Arab believer and and head of a very large ministry, the the one that Joshua Fund has worked with over the years. And uh, he says, listen, there's a really interesting story, Cooking. Um, There's an Arab, there's a woman who's the top newscaster in Syria, okay? She's the the leading newscaster um, on, you know, state-run television, and she's from a nominal Christian background, but she wasn't born again. But she read Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, in Arabic. And God used that, and she came to faith in Jesus Christ. She's truly born again now. And now she's just cruising through the scriptures, she's studying, she can't get enough, and she's like, she's stunned that all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, it's Syria, 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 you know, Paul comes to faith on the road to Damascus, right, the first Gentile church is in Antioch, right, which is in Syria, and you see all these things, Paul gets sent out from the church in Syria, and uh, keeps coming back to report to the believers in Syria, and it's pretty exciting. And she was, she's like, this is news. And then she caught herself and thought, well, you know, it's not. It's sort of 2,000-year-old news, but it's news to me. It'd be news to my people, but I can't really just go on the evening news and say, hey, guess what? So, so my friend tells me, listen, something very interesting has happened. She got so excited about all of this that she wrote a documentary film telling the life of how a religious terrorist named Saul got... Transformed on the road to Damascus, and how the the rest of the world knows about Jesus in large part because of the transformation that happened on, in in Damascus. And she and so she she started to she wanted to make this documentary film on her own on the side, not with her news uh, station. But some friends said that's great, and we'll help you but we think you need to dramatize some of the scenes where these things in the Bible happen. Like you can, she, she said, I wanna, like there, there's really a straight street still in Damascus. And she wants to, this is so and so on straight street. We're here at Judas's house where the apostle Paul came to faith in Jesus and was uh, you know, healed from his blindness. Let's go in, you know, and she you was know, gonna film in there. And that's what they did. But they said, well, why don't you then cut to a scene where you've sort of dramatized these moments between Saul and Ananias and so forth. Uh, you know, Saul out, a, you know, falling off his horse in the bright light. And she's like, great. So they made this film. And then they thought, oh, come on. We didn't even think about the fact we can't show it. It's Syria, right? Bashar al-Assad al- is a, is a uh, you know, a dictator. He's not going to let us show this movie. Now, she was very shrewd. She and her team, they, they decided not to name this A Jew Comes to Jesus in Damascus. Because she thought that, that may not resonate in the local culture. So she just called the film Damascus. So what happened was they started praying and they started praying. They thought, well, we've been so excited about this project and then we forgot that we can't use it. So that's a problem. But let's you know pray an audacious prayer. Let's send a DVD to the palace and ask if Bashar al-Assad would watch it. And the rest of the team was like, maybe we should pray about that a little longer. They prayed, they fasted, they thought, no, that's a good idea, and let's ask him for permission to show the film in, you know, in in churches and in little theaters and stuff around the country. Okay, so that was their plan. So one day, the uh, the newscaster answers the phone. It's the top advisor to. President Assad, yes, hello, yes, my friend, yes, I, I want to tell you that His Excellency President Assad loved the movie Damascus. Very impressive. It, it was so. It really speaks to the historic importance of our city and our nation. And he wants you to premiere the movie in his private movie theater. <laughs> Who is this really? <laughs> Uh, well, that is very kind, Your Excellency. Uh, please tell the president we're so gratitu- grateful and we have so much gratitude. We don't really have a budget to put on a big, you know, sort of Hollywood-esque uh, premiere. So I, I, I'm very sorry, but I, I, I don't know that we can do that. Uh, don't worry. Don't worry. Listen, I will talk to the president uh, and I will get back to you. <laughs> now they're excited, but a little worried. Like they basically said, thank you, but no. <laughs> to uh, the dictator of Damascus. A couple days later, biling, biling. Oh, oh, just a second. Yes, hello. Yes, 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 my friend Habibti, listen, listen. The president said, no problem, no problem. Uh, the minister of culture, he will be in charge of everything, uh, he will fund the entire thing. You just, we will invite all the top Muslim leaders in Syria. You invite all the top Christian leaders and and this is the date we will have it and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. We'll put up big billboards and lights and uh, all the cameras will be there and the coverage. It'll be fantastic. Uh, Okay, thank you very much. Shukran Habibi. Okay, wow. So, this is what happened. They had this premiere of Damascus. It was, And if the president thinks it's important, if it's shown in his private palace, then everybody in the country wanted to see it. So they started having, they, mayors all over the country were saying, come show the film, right? Partly because they wanted to see it, partly because they wanted to send a signal to the palace. Hey, we, whatever the president wants, we like it too, right? The, the president was giving authority to show this gospel program uh, movie all over the country. Then they got this idea, well, what if we made DVDs and and we started distributing so people who can't come to these relatively small theaters, they can watch the movie too. All right, we wanna make 500,000 DVDs. We don't have any money. Joel would the Joshua Fund fund that. Okay, sorry, who is this again? You want an Israeli-focused ministry run by a Jew, a Zionist. Uh, You want us to fund it. Yeah, yeah, but but maybe through another organization, and maybe we just be a little careful. I mean, let's not kill ourselves. Uh, So that's what we did. And and God used that film in such an amazing, crazy way. God is moving. Uh, I I, want to take your question, and then I'm going to close with one more fun story. Okay. I mean, hopefully I'll tell you a fun story, too. Right.
3: Thank you. I don't know that if you would have thought about this in 2015, but to be able to meet with with the two countries that normalized their relationship with Israel first. Yes,
1: yes, it was very to, special. It
3: is very special. And to see now, 2021, we are just just celebrated the one year of the Abraham Accords. Yes. At the same time, this catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. So do you see that the Saudi Arab states that are now reaching out to Israel, I'm hoping that this will continue with the momentum to take the negative of Russia, China, Iran, the surrounding countries that are so delighted that mm. now Afghanistan is theirs. Right. Do you see this unfolding as a positive? And, and, I, and I really appreciate, uh, I served under the Trump administration, mm. uh, and I very much appreciate the fact that, that you, you did tell, that you shared the truth that President Trump did set, conditions on the withdrawal. Yes. His conditions were very strict. They were three of them. The Afghan, the Taliban did not meet them. Yes. We were there in Doha with the Taliban. Um, they did not meet those conditions. Therefore, right. that's why President Biden had every reason and every excuse he could have said, I can't pull out in May. I'm going to delay this until they meet right. these conditions. Right. So I really appreciate the fact that yes, e- Anyway, it was going to be unpleasant. But at least we would have held them firm and the countries now that are looking at us, such as Taiwan, that are thinking, are you ever going to protect me mm-hmm. in the way that you've, you've not protected the Afghan people? Right, right. So I just really appreciate to, that you, you know, are just welcome. a real uh, steward of peace, and you, you, you know, to be able to know that tomorrow, obviously, the king um, and al Sisi, and also the, the new prime minister of Israel. Iran's new president. They'll all be <laughs> descending upon New York.
1: Yes, be good And I'll be interested to
3: see how um, the new um, prime minister of Israel and Biden take on the Abraham Accords mm-hmm. and how if they're going to strengthen this for us. So thank you so much. My for being pleasure.
1: Here. Thank you. It, well, and this book, Enemies and Allies, is the only book. Yes, it's also the first, but it's the only book that takes you inside how do these Abraham Accords come to pass. We, I tell the story, Larry was with me, we were in the palace in Abu Dhabi, which is the capital of the United Arab Emirates, two years before the Abraham Accords were signed. And we, this was our first trip now to a country that hadn't normalized relationship with Israel. We're sitting with the crown prince in the palace, covering many topics over two hours, and at one point I said, you know, Your Royal Highness, you need to know three things about Israel, uh, about evangelicals when it comes to Israel. Um, Number one, we love Israel and the Jewish people. It's deep, it's theological, it's not political, and you can't shake us from it. uh, So you just need to know that about us. (laughs) Number two, that being said, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. So we don't hate Palestinians. We love Palestinians. We love our neighbors. Uh, We are supposed to love our neighbors. Enemies, too, and it's those, both, both of those are challenging. It's hard to love your own family sometimes, right? But we we are not here to say, because we love Israel, we have total disregard and disdain for Palestinians. We want their lives to be better. Um, and we are not coming with a plan. We just want you to know it's not a zero-sum game, uh, the way we understand it from the scriptures, right? And third, we have been praying... Uh, Psalm 122, verse 6, for, uh, for many, many decades, King David commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we're praying and we're looking, who will be the next Arab leader to make peace with Israel? It's been almost a quarter of a century since the Jordanians were the last ones in 1994. Who will be the next Arab leader to make peace with Israel, even if the Palestinian leadership isn't ready? Now this was sort of a a set piece. We were gonna just say this because we thought it was important for him to hear. And we were just curious what his reaction was. But we were shocked by his reaction because as you'll read in the book, he goes, it's gonna be me, Joel, I'm ready. I'm ready to make peace. And we're like, what? And that was a very interesting conversation. The problem was it was off the record at the time. So we were sitting on this huge story. Another Arab country is about to make peace with Israel, but we couldn't say it. And we kept our word and we kept his confidence. (coughs) <coughs> and we kept in close touch with him and his inner circle, and, and sure enough, two years later, he made peace. And we te- I tell the story of really how it came to pass um, and, and how President Trump, uh, all the critics who t- said, you know, you have no experience, you have no idea what you're talking about, you're going to make the Middle East worse. How did he end up brokering this deal Uh, And the one with the UAE led to Bahrain, led to Morocco, led to Sudan, and and it's pretty dramatic. Kosovo, too, is not an Arab country, but it is a Muslim country. Uh, And I was just with uh, Jared Kushner and the various uh, Israeli and Arab ambassadors last Tuesday in Washington for a one-year anniversary celebration uh, of that. And, we, and there were some Biden administration senior officials there. I talked to them and um, a senior Democrat in the House. And there was a discussion about why have the Biden administration not really warmly embraced it. Because the only thing that, and I note this in the book, the only thing that Biden and Trump agreed upon in 2020 in the campaign was the Abraham Accords. Biden, to his credit, spoke very warmly and positively about the Abraham Accords. Uh, they have been slow out of the gate to embrace it and talk about how to build on it, but they, but some you know mid-level officials, let's say, did at that event. And on Friday, Secretary of State Tony Blinken did a video conference with. Um, Israel's foreign minister and the foreign ministers of several of these Arab countries and spoke very positively about uh, the Abraham Accords and the road forward. You can read that story on all Israel news if you're interested. And these are the type of stories that you might miss because most major media aren't telling you any of it. So I I, I am praying for uh, uh, the Biden administration to to work on this. I think the Saudis are a country to watch closely. Uh, we need to pray for them. I think they're weighing, is it in their national interest to make peace? Um, and uh, I can't discuss the conversation we had with the crown prince, but you can be guaranteed that we had them. I will say, what's, what's publicly on the record right now? Well, the Saudis did not oppose the Abraham Accords. In fact, they warmly uh, embraced and endorse them. They uh, didn't break with these Arab countries that made peace with Israel. The way they broke with Egypt and Sadat in 1979 when Egypt made peace with Israel. Uh, The Saudis are allowing Israeli planes to fly over Saudi territory for the first time ever to Bahrain and to the United Arab Emirates, and, and planes from those countries to fly over Saudi airspace as well. Never seen this happen before. And... I note a report in the book that there was a secret, but not so secret because I reported it in the book, a uh, meeting between Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo in Saudi Arabia on Saudi soil. Like, this is very interesting. Now, there's a whole set of calculations they have to make, and there's a whole set of Timing issues they would have even if they make that decision. Yes, we're gonna make peace Then the question is how and how do we how and when and where do we get the maximum benefit? Is Biden gonna embrace us for doing it right now Biden is stiff arming the Saudis? Okay, so Does this just the Saudis get any credit for doing this um, and what will the American people uh, think better of the Saudis because of doing this I think yes And I think this is the biggest card they have to play. They've got to make many internal reforms, and you'll read about them all in the book. The reforms they have made, the reforms they still need to make. But I think the biggest thing they can do that that would significantly positively affect how people see the Saudi government and that they genuinely want to move in a moderate direction, it won't change every problem they have, But it's the biggest card they can play. They shouldn't do it for public relations reasons. They should do it because they've made a national security, national interest decision. But once they make that decision, if they make that decision, then I think they should move. And I think, uh, personally, I think they should do that in the next year. And uh, I think that'd be pretty exciting. Um, it's something to pray for. Look, you can say, "Listen, I, you know, Daniel chapter nine tells us you know the Antichrist is going to make peace with Israel." And so, I, I, Joel, I'm a little concerned that you you seem like a nice guy and you seem like you have some idea what's going on. But don't you understand that peace with Israel? That's all deception. It's going to be the Antichrist. You don't. Why? How are you getting lured into this? And I would say, "Listen, that will happen at one point." But why does Paul, why does King David tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? if that's a, a, a scheme of the enemy? Why does Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers if, he's, if that's really the, the only way for it to happen is the Antichrist to do it? Why does Paul say, as long as it's possible, um, try to, you know, as long as you have anything to do about it, try to make peace with all men? Why does the psalmist say, seek peace and pursue it? The Bible is talking about trying to be a peacemaker nationally and, of course, interpersonally. And, uh, and so we have to be very careful, I think, to not be so cynical to say that if we, God tells us to pray for peace and pursue peace, that when peace happens, like, ah, no, no, that's from the Antichrist, right? It's almost like saying, uh, oh, Lord, I pray that uh, the Apostle Peter would be let out of prison. It's the Apostle Peter. No, it isn't. We're praying for the Apostle Peter to be released from prison. Now, 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 now be quiet. Oh, Lord, please let it... <laughs> it's the Apostle Peter. No, it's not. We're praying for the Apostle Peter, right? It's like... Sometimes God gives us what we pray for, <laughs> and look, the peace won't hold until Jesus comes to make all things right, but he, but anytime there's a release moment, we should be happy as opposed to a contraction. We know more contractions are coming. So, But look, the, the most important thing for us to understand is contraction or release. People are going to hell in the Middle East without Christ, and how are they going to be rescued from this unless the church, the people who know Jesus are engaged in helping them at least here, and strengthening our brothers and sisters who do know, but need courage, they need resources, they need prayer, they need support, they need training, so they can be the lighthouses in the darkness. Um... I'm going to give you one other story, and these are stories designed to tell, yes, part of it is what the Joshua Fund has been involved with sometimes, But, but what I'm really trying to show you is not I would love for you to get prayerfully and financially involved in the Joshua Fund, but what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and sometimes he does very exciting dramatic stories that you 're not going to read on the front page of the uh, the, of the Lexington Herald or on the NBC nightly News or what or the Washington Post because they are not paying attention to these things um, but but some of us are here 's a story so an Iraqi man um, and his wife were uh, this man was an, uh, as an architect, and um, but they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They weren't from a Muslim background; they were from a nominal Christian background. But they were born again. Suddenly, God, they really understood. Wow, Christ loves us, and we're born again, and we need to tell people. But we don't have any training, so they happened to meet some people who work with Campus Crusade for Christ in the Middle East. Now, they don't call it Crusade in the Muslim world. Okay, it's they, you know. I have some branding issues there. Okay, so, so anyway, but they but they said we we want to give up our work in in business and you know and we want to be involved full time in telling people about Jesus. Our country, Iraq, you know, we're under Saddam Hussein. This is back a number of years ago. Uh, we just feel like we got to do something. Christ has done such a great thing in our lives, and we don't know. We don't have any training. We don't know what to do. Well, would you like to join our our team, and we'll train you. We'll take you to London. We'll get you trained, and then we'll send you back, and we'll help you. We'll encourage you. Okay, yes, we'd love to do that. So they they joined the staff. They went through nine months of training, and then just as they were getting ready to go back, somebody brought these big canisters of 16-millimeter film and said, okay, this is the Jesus film in Arabic. We want you to take this back to Iraq and turn these into VHS cassettes. You can see this is a little bit ago, and, uh, and distribute them to anybody you possibly can to get the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus, this movie that was produced with Campus Crusade money and it was produced by Warner Brothers, the Jesus film, right? Get this thing distributed. And they're like, what? I'm sorry, I'm not sure if you understand where we live. You're asking me to take canisters of a film about Jesus into Iraq. Yes, we are. To distribute the life of Jesus in Iraq. Yes, have you ever read anything about Iraq? Do you have any idea who our leader is, Saddam Hussein? Not a, not a friendly person. I don't think we can do that. And we don't just have video companies on every corner. Maybe you have them here in London, but we don't, you just can't turn things into films into VHS, well, the Lord will be with you. That's your mission. This is part of what you'll do. And then as people are interested, you can help lead them to the Lord and help them grow in their faith. Don't worry. Just pray about it. Okay. So they t- so they go back to rock. And now the couples, they're, they're terrified. They're thinking, oh, this is not what we thought we were signing up for. This is a bad, bad idea. These people don't understand what we're up against. And so after a few months, the wife was like, well, we did kind of promise to do this. I mean, if God saved us, I mean, maybe he may, you know, I mean, he's a big God. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we, Maybe we should at least try. And the husband's like, try, we're going to get arrested. We might get killed. She goes, yeah, I know, but look, look, just go find somebody to tell you no. Then we'll write a letter to them and just say, we tried, it doesn't work. See? And then they'll ask us to do something that's easier. Okay, that's a good idea, he said. So he drives up to the... Nat- There's only one television network in Iraq, right? So he drives up to the front door and he... <laughs> He walks in and there's a, I guess there was a receptionist, I don't know why. Um, Excuse me, um, who would I inquire about turning this film into VHS copies? I would like to do that. Um, We don't really do that. Yeah, yeah, but do you have a manager? Do you have somebody, a supervisor? Anyway, so the the, the, the the lady gets a supervisor, and he tries to explain it, like, "What's the movie about?" And what what? It's a religious thing. It's Christian. Uh, 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 look, we don't do that. Well, could you just ask around? Listen, just leave. I'm very busy. Just leave the film here. Leave your name. I'll get back to you. But the answer is no. Okay, no, that's good. So he leaves. A couple of weeks later, it's Christmas. Okay, and this man and his wife, they're home. They're in their house with their children. They're having Christmas dinner, and the phone rings. Now, the phones don't ring on Christmas, usually, because everybody's just with their family. You don't call your neighbors. It wasn't a cell phone, but, hello? What? Turn the TV on? Why? Why would I turn the TV on? It's Christmas. No, but what, what? Hey, wait. I don't know. He hung up. What did he say? He said, turn the TV on, quick, quick, and then he hung up. Who was it? Well, it was so-and-so. All right, well, turn the TV on. Okay, it must be a disaster. They turn the TV on. It's the Jesus film. They're like, what? The, it's the Jesus film. And like the entire country is watching the Jesus film. And they, and they just sit down on their couch and they're just looking. And, and it gets to the end where it says, um, you know, in, Rome, or in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, jesus says i stand at the door and knock if anyway and then it stops abruptly like they hadn't actually apparently watched the whole thing so when it came to the invitation to receive christ they didn't know that was there and suddenly they cut it and it went beep and then it went to some islamic programming and they're like what just happened Eventually, I so I, I eventually met this man and I and I got to know him and I and he told me this story and I and I wrote it in a in a previous book, but I basically he eventually pieced together the story. What happened was Saddam Hussein had been facing an uprising after the first Gulf War from the Kurds. Okay. And during that uprising, where, where President George H. W. Bush had encouraged the Iraqi people to rise up against Saddam, but when the Kurds did, Saddam started bombing them and killing them and we didn't do anything to help them, okay? So that wasn't a, that wasn't a good thing. But the Christian community stayed loyal to Saddam during that period. And Saddam said, we need to do something, so he gathers his advisors together, and he goes, we need to do something to, uh, to honor the Christians this year because they've been so loyal to the, to the Republic. And of course, you know, if you're an advisor to the, you know, the president, right? He had shot his brother-in-law in the face, you know, when he didn't want do something he wanted. Like this was Saddam Hussein, right? So they're like, okay, how would you like? Yeah, I don't know. Just do something. Put something on television uh, to honor the Christians. Okay, end of meeting. They're all like, okay, everybody goes out. So one of the advisors goes to the head of the television network, right, and says, His Excellency would like a program on Christmas Day to honor the Christians. And then he left, and the guy's like, "Okay." And then when he left, he's like, "I don't have any program for the to honor the Christians." That's what. Hey. So he gathers his senior staff. What are we going to do if we don't do this? You all know what's going to happen, and uh, and they're like, "Well, I don't know. Do we have any? Do we have? Have we ever shown any program that would honor Christians? No, I don't think we, we have anything in the storehouse in the in the archive. No, so then." What what what? Uh, an aide comes in. Excuse me. Um, somebody just dropped off this film. Shut up! Shut up! We don't. We, we are. We are, We are talking about how to honor the Christians, and we, we can't think of how to do it. No, but we just. Somebody dropped off this movie about Jesus. No, come on, get out, get out. We are talking, and this is very important. Wait. What did, what did you just say? Uh, some man. He 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 just dropped off this movie. Uh, apparently, it's about Jesus. He wants to make uh, VHS copies. Uh, I I told him no, but he he asked for uh, somebody higher up to decide. And the guy, the head of the network turns to his team and goes, Jesus, like, that's about the Christians, right? Like That, maybe that, oh my God, this, oh Allah, thank you, that, maybe this, Let's show this. Jesus is building his church. Saddam Hussein cannot stop it. Bashar Assad cannot stop it. Nobody can stop it. The gates of hell cannot stop it. This is our God. He is great. And we need to be faithful and say, Lord, use me. I'm I'm an architect in Iraq. What do I know? But okay, if you want to put the Jesus film on television and show everybody with the stamp of approval of Saddam Hussein, go for it. We have to believe that God is bigger, that he thinks bigger, that our prayers need to be bigger. Because Jesus said, he promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Pastor, would you come and close us in prayer?
0: Don't cut it off yet. We uh, sure, surely thank Joel and his team for coming and helping us. And uh, I sense the Lord is doing something in our area. And uh, I want to pray for you. And I want you to pray for this city. That we will have an awakening. And partnerships will develop. And we will help reach the nations of the earth and the Jewish people. So stretch your hand out toward the Lord's servant. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. We ask, Father, that you would bless your servant indeed. We ask that his influence and reach through you would grow. We ask for protection over him and his family. Keep him strong, healthy, Father. Keep evil from him and use this man to be a part of you building your church. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Would you pray for us?
1: Oh, sure. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful congregation, uh, for these dear friends, these people who love you and want to be pleasing in your sight. They want to hear you say to them when they see you face to face, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. And I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So I pray, Lord, that you would hear their prayers as they pray for Revival, as they pray for a great awakening Lord, you brought a great awakening Through the prayers of your saints here in 1801 And the years that followed And it had national implications And that had global implications And we need you to do this again If you're, You may be judging this country We may be at the end We may be in a Romans 1 situation Where you're just turning us over uh, With 63 million babies Murdered. We, we would understand if you're just done with us, but you haven't told us you're done with us, and we're still standing here, and we're asking, Lord, we know you don't need to show your mercies, but we ask that you would pour out your spirit at least one more time. Do something great and mighty that we've never seen before that's greater than the first great awakening, that's greater than the second great awakening, that's greater than the, the Jesus movement of the 70s. Uh, don't give up on this country and please rescue those who don't know you or those who've wanted from you and use this country uh, to continue to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, and to be a blessing to Israel and her neighbors. We seek you, we want to please you, and we are asking for big things. Um, We know you can say no, but you might say yes, and we want you to. In Jesus' powerful and wonderful name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for coming. Have a good night.